In this new podcast series, I will be talking to visionaries, creatives, healers, teachers, educators and guides all around the globe. I'm so excited to share with you chats that I've had with these amazing people who are showing up in the world and helping people to shine their light, helping people to create their own journeys and to, you know, move forward in a positive manner. My intention for creating this new series where I talk to these amazing people was that I wanted to showcase other people that are in the world that are supporting women, are supporting humans, are helping, who are guiding and, you know, offering different healing modalities, mindfulness mindfulness techniques for parents and children and and everyone alike I wanted to showcase um, and open up dialogue around spirituality and healing modalities I wanted to just have conversation that flowed conversation that was um, informative and that everybody could get something out of and myself included in these interviews or these episodes that we you know and these chats that I've had with these people um, has opened up so much to me so I can only imagine what it's going to do for you guys Um, so I am so excited to announce this new series and I absolutely hope you love it as much as I do so let's get into today's episode Hi, Maeve. So glad to have you with us on the podcast today. How are you? Doing really well. I'm really glad to be here today. Excellent. So I usually kick off just asking my guests just to give a bit of a background about themselves, just to sort of share where you're at, what sort of things you've done to lead up to where you are now. Okay. Um, My path has been a very winding one. It has not been straight at all. Um, For the longest time, I thought I was always going to just be a straight writer and a creative person. And for a long time, my path reflected that. I went to college for English and then I did a master's in creative writing. And for a while, it seemed like, you know, that was a straight and narrow. That was what I was going to do. But um, life has other plans sometimes. (laughs) And um, I have a tendency to... Yeah. I have a uh, tendency to get really bored with what I'm doing if I'm not fully exploring like every facet of everything that I'm interested in. So um, that kind of just led me into um, coaching writers and writing. And that just kind of naturally then progressed into life coaching, particularly for the quarter life crisis crowd, um, new and young moms, creative personalities. And I'm trying out a new focus with um, even younger girls, teen girls, um, because I do feel like it's important to get to them young and early before the quarter life crisis even really becomes a thing. Um, Because it can be so detrimental to start off in life and just not really know where you're going and not feel confident in your choices and your ability to make the right decisions. 
Yeah, I feel there's a lot of pressure these days as well to, you know, be successful or to know at least what you want to do, which is at that age is quite tricky, isn't it, really? It's actually, it's kind of ridiculous. Um, I remember being, I think, 15 or 16 years old and our school, my high school counselors were already trying to talk to us about what college we wanted to go to and what we wanted to major in and what classes we should take in our junior and senior years to better prep us to look good on like our resumes to apply for these colleges and these programs. And it's really absurd how early it starts, 15, 16 years old, you know, you're, you're a teenager. Some people are barely out of puberty. They don't know who they are, much less what they want to do. And there is so much pressure, especially if you're a high performing individual, if you get good grades and you do well and you participate in extracurriculars and you kind of put yourself out there as a person who does well, then it almost kind of feeds into having high expectations placed on you because you've done so well in the past. Therefore it's expected that you're going to do well in the future. And it kind of just feeds this pressure to keep up the act, even though you're not really sure where it's leading you yet, but you feel like you have to know because you've already built yourself up with a certain kind of reputation, so to speak, that, you know, I'm a good student. I'm a reliable person. I know what I'm doing but it's okay to not know what you're doing because you're still a kid, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think I was 40 and still didn't know, (laughs) you know, it's sort of, and some people do know, some people do Mm -hmm. know, but the majority of people don't. And as you said, like you thought you knew, but it changes, like life changes around you. And so we, you know, go on different paths, all over the place so mm-hmm. it is a lot of pressure I agree so how do you work with these girls um, I try to start out by really getting to know them for who they are and I feel like it's really really important to kind of set the standard that there is no standard <laughs> so to yep. speak um, getting to know you for who you are and getting beneath the, the fantasy self, the imaginary version of ourselves that we build up in our heads that people expect us to be and that we try to fulfill that version. Um, I feel like is very common in teen girls. It's common even in women my age, you know, when we're trying to perform to be like perfect wife, perfect mother, um, entrepreneur that is big and successful. You know, we all have these expectations that we place on ourselves in this fantasy version of ourselves that we try to live up to. And, um, so it really starts with who are you, you know, who do you think you are? And it's okay when you don't know, you know, you have to make it clear very upfront. Like it's okay. If you don't know, just tell me some things about yourself. What do you like? What do you enjoy? You know, what really gets your heart racing? What puts you down? And, you know, how do these things make you feel? How do you process these things? And you have to kind of really start forming a relationship where anything you say is okay. Um, So it starts there. And then from there, you kind of have to just, how do I say, build up their confidence. Um, I believe in you. I trust that you know what is right for you. It's okay to take time. It's okay to not know. And then a little bit at a time, kind of saying, 
you know, what do you, what would you see yourself doing? Like, what would be really fun? What would be really fun to do? Um, Cause I also feel like, especially with my generation, a lot of us were told that we couldn't do the thing that we wanted to do. Um, especially if we went into <laughs> liberal arts, lots of people like to make fun of us for um, going into liberal arts or pursuing degrees that um, more traditionally is not considered lucrative. And um, I feel like the same is true for this new generation coming up, except there is a lot more freedom now because a lot more people of my generation are starting to break that mold and say, you know, this is BS. We shouldn't have yeah. to adhere to the same old thing. If it's not working for us, there's no reason to be unhappy for 90% of your life just so you can enjoy the last 10 years when you retire. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, so just really asking what would be fun? What would you love to do? Um, and then fostering that idea and helping it grow, helping it flourish, you know, helping them develop ideas. Um, at the team level, you know, I don't focus a lot on, um, I don't focus on college. I don't focus on jobs. I don't focus on careers. I really just focus on building up the confidence in you can do whatever it is that you want to do and your dreams aren't stupid. They're not unattainable. Um, and that you can go forth and do whatever it is that you feel like you are meant to do in this life, you know? So that's kind of, um, where I'm at right now with that. Yeah, beautiful. And so do you do like one-on-one or do you do like workshops with like these girls or do you, do they come to um, you? Are you, so, so far it's been, um, mostly groups, small groups. Yep. Yep. Um, mm -hmm. so, um, small groups that are kind of focused on one topic usually. So it'll be, um, you know, if it's, for example, like the, the latest one I had was, um, a creative workshop for young writers, like teen writers. And it was focused around, um, you know, bringing out our creativity and writing authentically as ourselves and not as, you know, people see us or want to see us. So there was really no pressure to be like, quote, literary or um, elite or anything like that, but more focusing on bringing out their creativity and sparking interest in who they really are and um, giving them a safe space to do that. Yeah, and that's really nice. And I think too, like when you do do things in groups, it's 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 nice because the pressure's not just totally on one person. It's like, mm -hmm. okay, we, we can feed off each other and bounce ideas around and, right. and feel like they're not alone as well. Right. Um, it's a lot of pressure when it's one-on-one. Um, one-on-one, -on -one. One -on -one, I feel with um, teen girls in particular, also kind of tends to feel like therapy for them. Yeah. And a lot of them don't like that. Um, <laughs> Self-improvement yeah. is something you kind of have to choose for yourself. And I feel like if it's a workshop setting, it's more subtle self-improvement than saying, we're going to try to quote, fix something that is broken, um, which is never the message you want to send to a young girl ever. Um, if there's something that she wants to improve upon, it has to be her own decision. It can't be something that we're pointing out. So I find that group settings with teen girls are more effective. Right. And so if you had any advice for like parents with teen girls, what would be your one key piece of advice that you would give to them? 
Oh boy, I have so many. Um, I think the main one that I'm thinking of right now would be to just let them be. Um, let them be themselves. Let them go. Stop putting. <laughs> stop. Don't keep on with the pressure. Um, yeah. I know this is more than one piece of advice, probably, but no, just to it. let them be. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. and to be supportive of the result of that, whatever it is. Yeah. You know, if they yeah. need to take more time, just be supportive of that. If they want to jump right into work, let them do that. If they want to go to college, if they want to you know, be interdisciplinary until they decide, you know, support that too. Um, Just let them be. Yeah. And so with the girls that you work with, what do you find is their most pressing issue? What do you find that they're they're struggling with? Um, I find that there's a lot of issue with self-identity. And that's me diagnosing them. It's not something that they've expressed to me. It's something more that I've noticed. If I was going with the thing that is most expressed to me, I would have to go with, um, like I said, this common theme of pressure um, to perform mostly, to be 10 different things at once, um, to know what is the right way. And especially this new group coming in, um, I don't even know if we have a name for this generation yet. Um, because we're so used to, um, you know, talking about millennials, you know, I think we've kind of rode that horse to death (laughs) at this point. Um, And a lot of people, I feel like, still don't realize that there are millennials out there that are turning 40 next year, you know, so it's, um, (laughs) we don't have, like I said, we don't have a name for the teen girls that are coming up right now. I don't know what that generation is called, but this new generation um, has grown up looking up to us, you know, knowing that eventually they were going to be in our shoes and seeing what happened to us and knowing that they don't want that to be them, that they want to define themselves in a completely new and unique way. And um, that's something I kind of hear from them is we're different and we're unique and we want people to realize that and take us seriously. And um, they just want to be themselves. They want to be unique individuals which is not a bad thing. No. No. I feel like that's, that's more what we're trending to, no matter the generation, you know. The more women build each other up and support each other, we're kind of building this network of women that are kind of just tired of it. We're tired of being told what to do and told what to be, and we're ready to break loose and take our control back. Yeah, see it. Did the sound cut out there for a second? I, I couldn't hear. I did it. Yeah. So I just said, working with women, um, myself, I know that it's it's definitely taken on a major shift. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With women, like trying to tap into who they really are and not doing what they should doing doing what they what lights them up right and I feel like it's super important to get to people as young as possible and let them know that that's okay yes absolutely. because you know I believe as children we grow up feeling uninhibited when we're very very young you know 
the world is our oyster. It's ours to dissect. It's ours to explore, make of it what we will. And then a little bit at a time, that curiosity and that light is chipped away at. And, you know, at the point in our lives where we're ready to start making some decisions and where the world expects us to start making decisions is really where we need to focus on going back to that, you know, that, that kind of early wisdom of childhood <laughs> type thing. Yeah. Um, so, and that's one of the reasons too, why I like to focus on uh, the quarter life crisis crowd, because I mean, I was there not too long ago myself. I remember it quite well. Yeah. And, um, so what just exactly that, is the quarter crisis crowd? So what is the age gap for that? The age, um, yeah, so let's talk about the definition of quarter life crisis yeah, first. I guess that would be useful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the quarter life crisis is a period, and for it's both genders, but for the purposes that we're talking, I'm just going to say woman. Yeah. Um, it's a period in a woman's life where she is faced with numerous decisions that are going to alter the course of her life. Oftentimes for the first time she is faced with decisions that she's going to have to make that are going to take her in one direction or the other. And, um, these are generally large, big decisions, um, that are going to affect the quality of her life or um, the direction of it, um, her capacity to achieve what she wants. Um, so this is generally taking place in a woman's 20s, generally speaking. Um, it can start very early, though. It can start in the later teen years, as I was saying. And um, for some of us, even, it can stretch into our mid-30s, depending on where life has taken us thus far. And, you know, if we've been in a controlling relationship that we've only been able to get out of when we're like 30, you know, we, we might hit that crisis a little bit later when we finally can make decisions for ourselves. And so what were you going to say before I cut you off about the quarter life crisis? You were saying you went long there yourself. Oh, yes. 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 I wasn't there um, too long ago myself. Um, I'm 30. And I feel like I came out of my quarter life crisis probably two or three years ago was when I started kind of really putting my life together, figuring out what I wanted and then committing like full on committing. And so it's very fresh in my mind. And up to that point, I feel like I was (laughs) textbook in the midst of that crisis where I didn't know where I was going, what I was doing. I was kind of just, I've always been the type of person to push through something, especially if I believe that it's possible somewhere in the back of my head, that belief has always been very strong. It's going to work out. Something better is coming. I just have to keep going. Uh, Not every person has that. So it's something I try to impart when I'm coaching. Um, This belief that you can do it. It will get better. This isn't the end, you know? And I wish somebody had told me that on some of my darkest. I I am so sorry. Just, well, unless you can control the weather, it ain't your I fault, know, right? It's crazy. I yeah. So for the listeners, we just had a like a short out of the electricity, so I had to then wait for the Wi-Fi to reload and all of that jazz. So anyway, we are back. <laughs> yes, I'm not even sure where I was cut off. <laughs> I don't know either. I think we're in the middle of a quarter life crisis. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, yeah, 
So keep going if you can remember where you're at. I don't remember exactly where I stopped. It doesn't really matter. (laughs) But um, what I was going to do was um, kind of explain my progression through my crisis. Yes, sure. um, See if maybe that resonates with some of the people listening. Absolutely, yeah. So without going back like super far and taking a really long time (laughs) to like tell this story, um, I moved a lot when I was a kid and um, it – it took me a long time to make friends. It took me a long time to feel comfortable. Um, the last time we moved, I was 12, turning 13. So it was a very pivotal point. Um, we moved to Pennsylvania. And um, I suppose I made two or three friends up front within the first year. Um, but that was the year that we had started going to middle school, which is in, in the United States, it's when. Um, you know, we start changing classes and we're not always in the same classroom with the same people or the same teacher. That that starts in, yeah, Um, that actually was year seven here. It's not year seven in all the states, but it was um, in my school. So in any case, I was uh, 13 and um, really just trying to start finding out who I was. When you spend time, you know, moving from classroom to classroom and teacher to teacher and you come across all these different people and all like the hallways and all the rooms, I remember feeling very displaced. And um, because that was also the year where, um, because it was the first year of middle school, there were three separate elementary schools converging into one school. So lots of people were meeting each other for the first time and there were pre-existing cliques and groups that we're meeting for the first time. So it's really just a cesspool of confusion for everyone. (laughs) Um, And I feel like, you know, up until, so it's grades seven, eight, and nine. And then at grade 10, we would move into the high school. And high school is kind of the point where we really start paying attention to like, who are you? What do you want to do? Whereas in middle school, it's kind of just, they let you go. (laughs) Right. Um, and, uh, I was never really bullied that badly, but I do remember feeling like I was on the outside for a long time and that people just either didn't want to get to know me or had a hard time getting to know me. And I had a hard time trusting people, um, because I had moved around and I don't feel like I was alone in that. My um, the best friend that I ended up making that year, who I'm still best friends with to this day, actually, um, we had that in common where we just didn't totally feel like people got us. You know, we didn't feel completely understood. Um, so almost kind of immediately when I was 14 years old, I got my first boyfriend, but it was not somebody that I knew locally. It was somebody that lived like a two hour distance away. And looking back in hindsight, I recognize that this was because I was afraid of getting close to someone like that. So it was safest to get involved with somebody who was not accessible. Right. Yeah. Um, and I feel like as teen girls, we have, especially I feel now, cause I feel like things are a lot more sexualized now than they used to be yeah. where it's, I don't want to say more acceptable, but more expected for teen girls to be 
in constant relationships and constantly looking for a boyfriend or looking for a girlfriend or looking for, you know, just somebody in their life to like fill this hole that we kind of just expect is there. You know, we tell them that they're not complete if they don't have somebody, if they haven't attracted someone. And um, that was true when I was in school. And I feel like it's still true now, unless we take definitive steps to, you know, tell girls that they don't need someone. If they want someone, that is fine. They don't need someone. Um, But I definitely felt at the time that it was something I needed to do. Um, But I was afraid to do it. So I I was with people that I couldn't be with all the time. Um, So that was kind of, I guess, my workaround (laughs) in a way. Um, But what that led to was um, boyfriends that would cheat chronically because I wasn't around all the time. And that just led to more trust issues and more of what's wrong with me and what do I have to do to make this work. And I didn't realize for like the longest time that what was really going on with all of these broken relationships. And there were quite a few. I was in a number of relationships for a year. One of them was five years, 15 to 20. I was in a relationship with the same person who was completely wrong for me. Um, So I think I'll actually take a quick break and talk about that relationship because um, especially with a lot of the teen girls that I see, I feel like the issues that I went through are very relatable maybe even to women now, like, you know, so I'm just going to go into that very briefly. Um, so I was in a relationship from 15 to 20, with the same guy. He was about um, a year and a half older than me. We were very close in age. Um, and it started off that he was two hours away. So I didn't see him all that much until I went to college and he moved in with me. And earlier on, our attraction was really that we felt misunderstood by everybody else um, in completely different ways, but that we felt misunderstood. And we kind of connected over this shared sense of angst. It's the only word I can think of. Like I, I hated the word angst when I was a teenager because it just felt so cliched. Um, But now it's in hindsight, it's like the only word I can think of looking back. Um, But we were just angry because we were misunderstood and because we felt so left out, we were angry. So we were angry together and we would spend hours every evening talking on the phone, falling asleep on the phone, kind of in this codependent state of, you know, I don't feel good. Everything's going to be fine. I don't feel good. Everything's going to be fine. And just kind of, it wasn't healthy (laughs) to say the least. It wasn't healthy. We had broken up a number of times and we always got back together again. Um, We would say nasty, mean things to each other, but it was always kind of under this pretense of, oh, but it's okay. She's going to forgive me. He's going to forgive me. Like, we're going to move on from this. This is just what we do. And nothing anybody else could really say would convince us that what was going on was bad because they just didn't understand. You know, I feel like a lot of, Um, not just teen girls, teenagers in general sometimes don't feel like people understand them. So the more people tried to bring us into awareness that this was unhealthy, the more we kind of clung, you know, Um, and we just became 
comfortable in this cycle of misery. It became comfortable. It became familiar. And we started settling with it. So when he, by the time he moved in with me, when I went to college, um, we were at a point where we thought this was it. You know, since we had been together for so long, through, like most of my teenage years with this one person, um, we trudged through a lot of crap together. And in my mind at the time, that meant that we had value. You know, it meant something. It carried weight because we had been through so much, <laughs> you know, like we worked yeah. so hard. Um, and at the time, I didn't realize that it was hurting me. You know, I was holding myself back. But, you know, as I did my classes and I started working while I was going to school and I started dreaming about the future. And when I allowed myself to really do that, to like look ahead and ask myself, what if? You know, what if I was a writer? Because at that time when I was going to school, um, everybody in my life to that point had told me, oh yeah, you can be a writer, it's cool, but what are you going to do for money? Was what I heard yeah. all the time. Uh, when I would tell people that I was an English major, they would say, oh, so you're going to teach? And I would go, no. <laughs> and they would say, well, then what are you going to do? And I said, I just want to write. And like, oh, so you're going to be a journalist? No. And it was always this very awkward conversation where I was expected to have a money-making plan. Because to everybody else, you know, writing books, writing stories, um, even being a freelance writer wasn't seen as lucrative. It wasn't seen as the smart move. Um, it wasn't something credible. It wasn't something good. And so there was this immense pressure to come up with something else. So like this thing I can't do, I was told I couldn't do. I needed a backup plan. So I was in college and he was living with me. And at the time he was not going to school, he was just working. And um, it became increasingly um, in, in my awareness, increasingly in my awareness that he did not share the same ambition that I did. He did not have the same drive. He wasn't dreaming the way that I was dreaming. He wasn't asking himself, what if? And this started forming a very noticeable gap between us. And we just, it wasn't a slow drifting. It was very, very quick happened probably within a period of two or three weeks from the time that I started asking, what if I did this? What if I did that? And I just felt my awareness growing and expanding. And he wasn't. Yeah. And he felt like a lead weight. And so I talked to him about it, said, what's your plan? What are you going to do? What would you like to do? What if you did this? What if you did that? Just throwing ideas out, anything, because I'd never got anything back. I never got any kind of response. And it just felt like he was relying on me to come up with the plan and like drag him through kind of like we did when in high school, you know? Um, and something snapped. I was tired of it. I was so tired of it. I was like, I can't be with somebody that's not going to grow with me. I can't be with somebody that, you know, isn't going to grow themselves that, isn't interested in doing bigger, better things. And um, it was like a light bulb went off. And for another couple weeks after that, 
you know, I think he tried a little bit, but ultimately I was say, I came to him at the end of the day. I was like, we can't do this anymore. And, um, and we broke it off and that was the final time. I was 20 years old in my third semester of college. So I had one more semester to go. And um, I was looking at graduating and what to do after graduation. And he had to go. <laughs> was the simplest way. I was like, I cannot graduate college with this man pulling me back. I can't do it. Um, and I let him go. And it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. One of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, I was emotionally distraught for a long time after that. But I tried to keep faith in myself, like, you're going to pull through it. You have to. First of all, you have to. Yeah. So you're going to. Yeah. And um, I remember sitting in my last class of my last semester and this light bulb went off in my head because I'm thinking this is my last class. It's my last semester. It was like the final hour of my bachelor's degree. <laughs> and um, I was like, what if I went to grad school? Was the what if. And that felt good to me. And I was like, I think I'm going to do that. And that was, that's the what if that kind of pulled me through the following year where I took a job that I hated. I hated the first job I had out of college. It was, I was a, um, a legal assistant for a very prominent law firm. And it was an awful job. <laughs> it was, um, it was boring. It was degrading. It was, I had a very long commute. Um, it didn't pay very well. And it just felt like it was draining my soul away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but I was there for about a year and then I started my master's program and I felt like I was alive again. Yeah. Um, so that part of my life was moving forward. Other parts, not so much. So while I was trying to figure out like, okay, I want to be a writer. I'm doing the master's in creative writing. I'm not thinking about the debt right now. We're just going to focus on moving forward. Um, my living situation became unstable because I was back living with my parents, which I feel like happened to a lot of people my age at that time. Uh, we were still in the midst of the recession. This would have been around 2012. And um, it was very hard to find a job. Very hard to find a job that paid well, very hard to find a job that had, you know, hours that worked with everything else that I was trying to do. Yeah. Um, so I did live back with my parents for a while and I was in a relationship with another boy for about a year. He ended up being a cheater. Um, with that relationship, when we broke it off, there were a lot of mutual friends that I lost as well. It was a more complicated relationship because of like the friend dynamic that was involved, but I lost a lot of friends in that. And when that happened, I kind of just, I felt like I snapped again. I was like, why am I still doing this? Yeah. And um, I moved across the state at that point. 
I kind of just put whatever I could fit in my car and I drove across the state and um, I met somebody else and we kind of had this short-term relationship that went on and I lived kind of out of my car <laughs> for a little while till I found a job and then I found an apartment and um, broke it off with him because he didn't really respect what I wanted to do. I remember inviting him to one of my public readings and I was reading a short story and I sat back down after I was finished and, you know, asked him, what did you think? And he said, well, it wasn't as exciting as the story that other girl read. Uh. And I'm, that's when I knew that things weren't going to work. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong thing to say, guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, that was the moment I knew it wasn't going to work. Yeah. Um, so I let him go. Yeah. And uh, through all of these relationships, I was kind of learning more about, you know, my boundaries, what I want, what I'm going to allow into my life. Um, and with all of these odd jobs that I was taking, finding the apartment, um, moved in with my high school best friend for a little while. And, um, you know, I feel like that really helped restabilize me because it was very grounding to be around her. And um, I started taking jobs for nonprofits in the city, which helped me feel good and energized doing good public service and um, kind of started climbing those ladders, doing more and more and more higher level administrative work, which wasn't what I wanted to do, but it was paying my bills and I felt good about it. Right. Yeah. Um, while that was going on, I met the man who's my husband. Um, he was very supportive, um, kind-hearted, just a, a good soul all around, just a good person. And um, he was immediately kind, supportive, emotionally available. Um, all of these things that the men in my previous relationships had not been. And initially, I was afraid of that. But because of everything else I had been through and all of this searching and searching that I had been through with the moving and the job hopping and all of it, yeah. I was able to recognize, no, this is exactly what you need. Yeah. And I told myself, you take this slow, you get to know him, you give yourself the space that you need, you know? And we did, we took it slower than other relationships than I had been in. And that worked out beautifully, <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we had a couple of rough spots like most people do. Yeah, yeah exactly. But um, overall, there, no real conflicts. No real conflicts of interest, no real like deviations from what either one of our plans were, whatever that would have been. Yeah. And, um, yeah, we decided that we were going to buy a house together eventually. And I was like, well, I don't want to be the live-in girlfriend. So I made a proposal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, we moved out of the city into the country because I wanted to raise children. And um, at that point when that happened and I was away from the busy bustling of the city and everything, I really started doing some more personal development. I started reconnecting with myself. It was, there was a lot of quiet. There was a lot of downtime. Right. And I was like, 
I feel like I need to reconnect with myself and figure out, you know, if I'm going to be a wife, if I'm going to be a mother, I need to know who I am outside of that. I need to hold on to that. Um, Cause I was still writing. I was still publishing little short stories here and there. And I did have writer friends in the city that I still communicated with. And that was very energizing still, but I always just felt like there was some piece that wasn't there. So I really dove back into personal development and um, that's kind of where the coaching came from. That's kind of where it was born. And that's where I've been going ever since really. Um, been hosting workshops. I have writing a writing group out here. Um, I'm trying to get um, a mom's group together and um, I'm attending a local wellness conference, doing a mini workshop with them um, and just trying to get more involved with the community here and trying to really, I guess, just settle in what I'm doing, but also expand. So I'm in a period of laying the foundation and then growing. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. And what a beautiful thing too, you know, you said you sort of looked at it at yourself before you had children. You were like, I'm going to be a mother. Um, I'm going to be a wife, but I need to know who I am. Because a lot of women tend to just become a mother and become a wife and have totally lost their identity, totally mm-hmm. lost who they are. Exactly. And the routines and the, the busyness of life. And that's where I find a lot of my clients are there at the other stage where they've like not been able to. So what a beautiful gift that you could actually do that beforehand. Right. And I would really love to be able to help other people do that as well. You know, yeah. find these things out, learn these things, lay foundations before these huge life decisions are made. Yes. Um, And that's in the case of the quarter life crisis crowd. And then in the cases of new and particularly young moms, you know, helping them find out these things about themselves and lay these foundations and, you know, develop themselves outside of these relationships and outside of these roles. Yeah. Very important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very important. So could you share with us for the listeners where people can find you? Yes. So I am on my website, which is www.mavemichelle.com. That's M-A-E-V-E-M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E.com. I also am on Instagram. It's underscore Maeve Michelle underscore. And on Twitter, um, just Maeve underscore Michelle. <laughs> I know they're not all consistent. It yeah, was yeah. very hard to find those. <laughs> um, I'll put them in I'll the show notes those. anyway so that people can find you and just click the link. <laughs> That'll yeah. make it a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if you do find me on my website, all of those social links will be there. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. And I always ask our guests, what does the um, phrase inner light mean to you? Inner light means, so I feel like I have a complicated answer. (laughs) Um, So I was actually just talking to one of my friends the other day about finding light in darkness. Um, I've been doing more personal development recently, and I've discovered that um, I'm an Enneagram type four, which means I'm an individualist slash romantic, depending on the book you're reading. 
And she made a comment about how she feels that um, type four personalities almost want the world to be more dark so they can experience the melancholy and then process it to bring out the light. And I said, there is something profound in that. But I said, for me, I feel I don't want it to be dark. I said, I feel that the default state of the human condition requires it to be dark. And then the process is to bring out the light. And we are driven to do it because we want to bring that light out. I said, that's where the drive comes from, this creative drive to kind of work through strong emotions, dig into them. And what they mean is to bring that light from the, out, from the inside out. And... Um, so I really feel like inner light is, it's something that's always lived inside of you that's been covered up by your experiences, by your life, by what other people have pushed on to you. And it's something that you have a responsibility and a passion to pull back out mm-hmm. and share with the world. And the more people that do that, the more light there is in the world overall. Yes, I love that. I love the ty- that take on it. I've had lots of different um, ways of people explaining that that's, yeah, beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. So I want to thank you for joining me today. And um, I, as I said, I'll put all the links in the show notes so you can find Maeve. And um, thanks again for joining me, Maeve. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun. Bye. See you.